Father, would you make your word come alive to us? Might your words come with, with weight, with authority, with help? As we come to this text, help us to be hungry for it. Help our souls know that they are famished, they are anemic, apart from hearing from your word. God, I ask that you grant us a humility beneath your word, that we'd bow our knees, that we would receive the truth of it. We can understand the, the details of a text. We can understand the, the logic of what it's saying, but we can't do anything with it apart from the spirit working on our hearts. And so we come confessing we are utterly dependent, and we ask for you to move. Now, what we pray most what we pray every week and what every single person needs in this room more than anything else, whether they have walked with you for 32 years, whether they're here for the first time in a church service, whether they're coming back to the faith after being gone for years, God, what all of us need most is to leave this time more impressed with Jesus, more convinced and confident in what he's done, and more full of hope with what he promises to do. And so, Holy Spirit, would you come and lift Jesus high? that our hearts might be drawn after him. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. One of the many things that I loved about visiting my grandparents is that they had a pool table in their basement. They lived a couple miles from my house, and so regularly, growing up as a kid, I would go over to their house, we'd hang out, grandma would always make something delicious to eat, and then I would go down to the basement and I would play pool. At some point, my grandpa would always come down and play with me in... We'd play a few games, and then at some point, he'd always play the exact same joke. When I wasn't looking, so I'd pretend like I wasn't paying attention, he would grab a different cue ball, looked exactly like a cue ball, same shape, same size, same color, and he would swap it out with the cue ball on the table. But this cue ball was a trick cue ball, and instead of when you hit it with your cue going straight, it would just spin and do circles and go wobbly, and then I'd watch him laugh every time. And I'd say, ah, oh, Grandpa, that's hilarious. And it was... Funny, it would go wobbly even though it was supposed to be straight. It looked like the real thing, but it was broken. And it for sure ruined the game, even though it was funny. Today's text is sort of similar. It's just not funny. What we're going to see is what happens when false teachers that sort of look like pseudo-Christians come in with a doctrine and a message that sort of semi-sounds like the gospel, but it takes everything and sends it wobbly. Today, we're going to look at three things as we study this text. There's a lot of major threats to the gospel. I'm going to give you one major threat to the gospel, one huge hope for all people, and one very doable commitment that all of us can make to keep us sound in the faith. One huge threat to the gospel, one really big hope for anyone, and one very doable commitment that all of us can make to help us stay sound or healthy in the faith. If able to stand for the reading of God's word, would you stand with me? Titus chapter 1, verses 9 through, and I'm going to read through verse 1 of chapter 2. This is God's holy, helpful, protective word. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those that contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, 
especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Feel free to grab a seat. If it's your first Sunday at Redeemer, you picked a good Sunday to be here. (laughs) Verses 10 through 16 give this long laundry list of actions and attitudes of false teachers that are coming in that are upsetting whole households or whole families. And the, the language there could mean either the, uh, a family, like, like my family, under one roof, a nuclear family, or it could mean the household of faith. It could be a collection of house churches. It doesn't really matter. What's happening here is that their faith is getting upset. There, there's something getting tweaked or distorted. They had this appearance of godliness. There was some veneer that looked like, man, that, that kind of looks right. They profess to know God, but at the end of the day, their lives and their doctrine denied their profession. There's a lot that we can unpack from these verses, but what I want to draw attention to is one particular part of it, and then we'll kind of build from there. There's one detail as it relates to a major threat to the gospel. This little phrase, especially the circumcision party. It was likely a group of ethnically Jewish people who are now professing Christians. They're saying, we're Christians who in addition, though, to believing in Christ and believing in Jesus, wanted to add into their faith other cultural, ceremonial, and moral activities, and listen to this, as a way to earn acceptance by God. Christianity expresses itself in so many different cultures and places and ways and styles and histories and and really good traditions. Those are not the problem. But when we express our Christianity and we express it with these sorts of styles and behaviors and activities and attempts towards obedience for this phrase, to earn acceptance with God, that's where things go sideways. It says in this text that are devoted to Jewish myths. These, we don't know what these myths were. Some scholars would say these were myths about heroes of the Jewish faith that they have then adopted and brought into the present moment to say, look, we should be exactly like them. We don't know, but we know they're myths. They're false stories. And then even worse, they're devoted to the commands of people. They're teaching the instructions of humans as if they are the doctrines of God. And they're devoted to them. Made up stories, made up rules, all posing is coming from God, and it's a huge problem. In brief, they were distorting Christianity into what I would phrase as a Jesus plus religion. It's not an outright rejection of Christ, and that's what makes it so slippery. It looks sort of like the real thing, but inside is something that will never go straight. It's always wobbling. A Jesus plus 
Religion, it's also known as legalism, of which takes many forms. I won't give you all the different forms. This legalism, in short, means this, I obey, therefore God accepts me. It's about what we do. It's one of the gravest threats to face the church. Always has been, I would suggest it probably always will be. It's the tendency of the human heart to believe that our standing, our acceptance, our forgiveness... Our eternal destination is in some way dependent upon our performance. That our standing, our acceptance, our, our, our future eternity, it's, it's crucially linked to how well we live out our faith. And these teachers were coming into it, and it was upsetting whole households, and it's so contrary to the, to the very center message, the, the biggest declared thing in Christianity that makes Christianity so unique amongst all the world religions and all philosophies and all approaches is, is, is the gospel, the good news that we are accepted not because of our performance, because of the performance of another. His name is Christ. It's the only one. That his perfect life in the place of our flawed and perfect rebellion, that his sacrificial death on a cross where he became sin for all who trust him, where he took the very judgment of God as the justice of God was poured out, not upon all those who believe, but upon Christ in our place, condemned he was nailed to a tree. And then he goes to a tomb and three days later to rise victoriously as a vindication to say the offering worked. We're saved by faith alone and Grace alone, in Christ alone, what he did alone. Not Jesus plus, just Jesus. Tolian Chavidjan, grandson to Billy Graham, popularized a phrase, I think it was back in 2010, um, that I actually think came from John MacArthur in a sermon he preached on Colossians 2 in 2007, and it's meant to capture the completeness of the gospel. And here's, here's the formula for it. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. It's how we got to sing, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. He he is our righteousness. He is our hope and peace. He is everything to us. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. As it pertains to our security and our salvation, it's not our performance. Now, from that phrase, a ton of spinoffs came out. Jesus plus anything ruins everything. Jesus plus anything is a bad thing. However you phrase it, that's what you have in this text. The circumcision party for shameful gain are teaching that Jesus is Savior, but not Savior enough. Now, I would suggest to you this is such a clear heresy. It's such a clear contradiction to, the, to so many places in the Bible. So the question is, why do we keep falling for it? Why do we keep getting duped by this? A number of reasons a couple weeks ago. I won't go into this one very, very much, but a number of reasons. I think there's, an, there's a conditioning that we have being raised in a world where performance is so rewarded, where our achievements are the standard of what we, we get. We audition everywhere all the time. Maybe this week I would just suggest to you, I think there's a lot of, a, a, a very common one is there's confusion on what Christians are supposed to do with commandments. So, track with me, I think this, or why Christians obey. If Christ did everything, 
And why obey? And as you read your Bibles, you'll see commands everywhere of things we're called to do and things we're not called to do. Much of Titus is that. The, the macro theme, the meta theme, the theme that traces through all of Titus is something like this, grace-produced godliness. Words like toil and strive and work and labor and effort are all throughout the Bible. And we read those and go, well, I, I have this right sense that I'm supposed to do something that there's something beyond belief. We even see it here in Titus 3.8, which we'll get in, in a month or so. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. And so we read that, and we say, well, belief isn't enough. I'm also supposed to do something else. And oh, yes, but why? And for what purpose? To earn, to cement our acceptance before God, or out of that acceptance. Let me give you a line, for me, is one of my favorite lines that helps to to hold this balance between grace and, and effort and how they fit. Dallas Willard, in his book, The Great Omission, says this, grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Let me say it again. Grace is not opposed to effort. The gospel, the good news that Christ saves anyone that would trust him apart from anything they do, it's not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Thinking that we have to earn through our church attendance, thinking we have to earn through our giving, thinking we have to earn through our serving, thinking we have to earn through how well we treat our spouse or our kids, thinking we have to earn through how much we pray, thinking we have to earn through devoting ourselves to the teachings of of others that say Jesus is Savior but not Savior enough, thinking we have to earn anything. Grace is not opposed to effort. We'll see that throughout the book of Titus. But it is opposed to earning. I think I've quoted Tim Keller every, probably every sermon for the last 16 years as a church. I've definitely used this quote the last three weeks in Titus. The Christian identity is the only identity in which your identity is received, not achieved. That's a stunning statement. That that is an unbelievably settling statement. That is an, an incredibly comforting statement that you are his. If you trust in Christ, that you are his apart from what you do. It is only about what he has done. And what was happening in this text is there's people coming in saying that's not really true. You don't quite look Christian enough. You're not quite keeping the Christian rules. Well, what rules? What playbook am I supposed to follow? You know, like historically, you could look at this stuff, and particularly in certain branches of Christianity, even today, it would be like, well, you're sending your kids to public school. Or the public school, well, you're homeschooling your kids, and they're not on mission. Or you, you know, or you're wearing pants, or your dress isn't long enough. Or your hair's not up, or your hair's down, or you watched a PG-13 movie, or you watched Disney, or you voted Democrat. 
Or in Bellingham, oh, you voted Republican. And we put all this stuff on Christ, and he's just so good. And the reason I would, uh, the reason they devoted themselves to myths and commands of people is they just got disinterested in Christ. When you see Christ for all he is, how could you ever talk about anyone else? When you see his perfection, his righteousness, his glory, his splendor, his grace, his mercy, his kindness, how could you ever look to anything else as the ground of your acceptance before a holy God? And they, the, these teachers that looked right, it looked kind of correct. They're just upsetting. They're, they're damaging the very center of our faith, the gospel. One major threat to the gospel, legalism, this sort of Jesus plus religion. So know that threat. Now, listen to this hope. Um, sermon titles are, are funny things. I think preachers are the only ones that care about them, is, is basically what I've come to, to realize, and we obsess over them <laughs> over and over and over again, and nobody else cares. But, but I definitely obsessed over this one. Um, here's some options before I finally landed on the one I did, which I'm still not even sure it's the one I want to choose. But um, here was one, how to ruin a perfectly good church. Um, how not to grow in godliness. The making of a terrible leader. How to be a jerk in three easy steps. Um, <laughs> what not to look for in a church or a pastor. The gift of a good rebuke. Um, I settled on this one. Anyone can change. And the reason is it highlights something that's almost hidden in this text that's so easy to miss, but it's why Paul instructs Titus to rebuke sharply. It's down there in verse um, 13. This testimony is true, therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. That's not how I would have completed that line if I was writing it. It may not have been how you expected the line to, to, to finish. Rebuke them sharply to protect the rest of the church, which is true. We see that in this text. Rebuke them sharply to shut them up. To silence them, at least it means to muzzle them, which is part of the, the, the desired impact. How about this? Rebuke them sharply in order to humiliate them, or so you win the argument. That's nowhere in the text. See, the point of this rebuking to what look like great enemies to the gospel is not to humiliate them, but to heal them. Sound doctrine, this word that's used multiple times, sound means to be healthy. Paul looks at enemies of the gospel, the author of this letter, he looks at enemies of the gospel going into churches that he helped plant that are messing with those churches, and he looks at enemies of the gospel, and he doesn't have, an, he doesn't have this animosity in his heart. He has an ache, and he longs for them to come to a knowledge of the truth. Rebuke them that they might be sound in the faith. You know, verses 10 through 16, it gives us this vivid list of what these false teachers were like, and Paul holds out ache and longing and hope for them that they can still be changed. This is such a gift that we could offer as the Christian church to our culture. You know, it's, it's, it's easy to tee off on cancel culture, but there's a few things that cancel culture gets right. There are things to call out and rebuke. There are things to say, that's not all right. That's, that's not okay. No, you cannot use your power for that. No, you cannot push that agenda 
without us. No, you are accountable for your actions and your words. But what it gets wrong is it only offers bad news. It's, it's just condemnation. But what do we have? We have the gospel. See, we have the gospel that comes out and says, here's the bad news. You are flawed beyond belief. You are worse than you think. You have sinned grander than you can dare imagine, but there's a God who is more gracious than you can fathom. And he's offered a way, not through your atonement and not through your uh, participation, not some self-salvation project. There's one that has come to heal you. Turn to him. Confess your need. Come and feast on his grace. See, as Christians, we, we, we don't want to. I was going to say we must never cancel. I, but I'd have to read through the whole Bible, I guess, to prove. Oh, I have. Um, but I don't know. Like through that lens. Um, but I'd say we must never cancel. We never give up hope. We, we never come with such accusations that our hearts turn so hard against those that are enemies of the gospel that we don't hold out hope for them. Now, I don't think it's coincident that the qualifications in verses 5 through 9 are opposites of verses 10 through 16. If you put these lists side by side, I won't go back up and read 5 through 9 again, but I'll just make some reference points. You have this, this contrast between transformation and change. You have above reproach versus insubordinate, devoted to their families versus upsetting whole families, not greedy for gain versus shameful gain. Lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined, up in verse 7, versus profess to know God but deny him by their works, detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. In this contrast, they hold firm to the trust where the word is taught versus devoting themselves to myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. And here's why I bring this up in the context of anyone can change. Titus was left on the island of Crete to put what remained into order. If we go earlier in chapter one, that's what he says. And what was left to be put in order is to find qualified men to, to put in the role of elders or pastors over these churches to be able to love them, to care for them, protect them, to guide them, to nurture them. The question is, where are these guys gonna come from? From Crete who, according to one of their own moral philosophers, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Like, that, that is, like to, to stereotype an entire people that way is offensive, but this was the general sense at this time, the, 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 that if you were called, the, the, just the word Cretan would be applied culturally at this time of saying, you're jacked up, we still sort of do it. That's how notorious they were thousands of years later. The ESV study Bible references the historian uh, Polybius, uh, Polybius, someone knows, I don't know. I, sh I forgot my own tip. Whenever you're reading names you don't know, just say them confidently and loudly and everyone will think you're right. Polybius, see, didn't that work better? Polybius wrote this. He said, it's almost impossible to find personal conduct more treacherous or public policy more unjust than in Crete. Cicero said this, moral principles are so divergent that the Cretans consider highway robbery honorable. That was the worldview that, that this community was swimming in. And yet they become these godly men that nurture healthy churches. Oh, anyone can change. Anyone can change. I love uh, St. Patrick's Day for, for two reasons. It's uh, Dane Burgess who's on staff, been on staff for 15 years. It's, it's his favorite day of the year. 
And I love Dan. So I just think that's fun. That it's, I don't know anyone that's their favorite day of the year. He literally every year says, you know I'm taking this day off every year. And we say, we know, Dan. <laughs> he loves St. Patty's Day. Um, the other thing that I love about it is it's an incredible example of the power of the gospel to change an entire culture. There's a fair amount of confusion over St. Patrick um, and the day and why we celebrate it. For one, he actually isn't a saint. We call him St. Patrick. The Catholic Church has not officially made him a saint. I couldn't find anywhere that the, the church actually affirmed him as a saint. St. Patrick, or Patrick, we'll call him Pat. Um, Pat, <laughs> he wasn't Irish. He was, he was English. Um, we also don't celebrate him. It's sometimes said that Patrick banished all of the snakes from Ireland and sent them all to England. Well, there's never been any snakes in Ireland. And so why do we celebrate this English guy on what is a very distinctly Irish holiday. Um, he lived around 400 AD. His dad was a deacon. His grandpa was a pastor. He grew up in a home of faith, but he rejected Christ in his teen years. His family was kind of by the beach on the coast of England, and a ship of Irish uh, pirates came by. They saw Patrick they stole him, they captured him, they enslaved him, and took him back to Ireland. And back in Ireland, he was enslaved by a Druid priest who treated him terribly in a very barbaric culture. And you got to remember, this is kind of the edge of the world. And in that time that he was there, he was there for seven years. At some point, he became a Christian during that time. Jesus got a hold of his heart. And he began actually to share his faith a little bit with the people around him. About seven years into his captivity, he had a dream in the middle of the night, and in the dream, God was telling Patrick, I want you to flee. There'll be a boat waiting for you in a certain harbor. And so he does. He, he leaves, he goes, he finds the boat. He, gets, he goes back to England now. So he's back in England. He's safe. He's now a Christian. About 25 years after returning from England, he has another dream, and he's told to go back to Ireland to go share the gospel. You know, that change alone, to go back to the people that you disdain, that abused you, that harmed you, that captured you. But he goes, and he goes, and, and his, if you go read some of his accounts of how much threat and danger he was over under all the time, it's absolutely stunning. But he goes, and he actually one of the first people that he goes to is his old slave master. He goes to this Druid priest, and he shares Christ, and this, this Druid priest actually becomes a Christian. And then it happened again, and it happened again, and, and, and it changed the whole country. There was this marked shift between the way they behaved and the way they acted and the rules that they followed as they came to Christ. Christ got a hold of their hearts and he got a hold of their, their culture. Paul knew the island of Crete could be transformed by the gospel. Patrick knew the country of Ireland could be transformed by the gospel. Do we believe that? Do we believe our homes? and our neighborhoods, and our schools, and our cities, and our state, and our regions, and our country, and to the ends of the earth, can be transformed by the gospel. Anyone can change. If anyone can change, it means you can change. It means I can change. We all can change. Your neighbor can change. Your political nemesis. Those policies that undoubtedly stand against Christ those can change. You know, pick your 
cultural position at odds with the Bible advocate, the loudest person that pushes the agenda that you think is, that you don't think that you've studied the scriptures and humbly submitted to the authority of God's word, not your preference, but God's word, and said, this is so contrary to God's word, can change. That heart can be transformed. That they might be sound in the faith. That they aren't giving their lives to myths and falsehoods, but come to a knowledge of the truth. This insight, when I sat here on this, this part, I was deeply convicted, I have to be honest. Particularly with those, this text is more those in the name of Christ preaching a false gospel, and I think about those in our culture that preach a false gospel for their own gain, and it, it's nauseating. And it should be, but here's what I often don't do, want to, to see them rebuked, trained, instructed so that they might be sound in the faith. I just want them to stop. But Paul says, no, we do this because we want to see everybody sound in the faith. All right, one massive threat, Jesus plus legalism. One huge hope, anyone can change. Let me give you a last point. One very doable, doesn't mean it doesn't take anything, one very doable commitment to keep you sound in the faith. Um, as I've shared before, I am a lurker on Instagram, and uh, I love to follow anyone that's part of our church. It gives me a way of just seeing, like, the things that you're all doing, birthdays, pictures, vacations, you know, what, whatever. So I, I love to jump on there and just see the stuff that you're doing. It helps me feel a little bit more connected with you. Um, the other thing I really like are, are jokes. I love the jokes that are on, on Instagram. And the way it works is, so I'm, I'm pretty old school, so I don't have the app, so I just go to it on a computer, and I log in to Instagram, and then I see, you know, the few things that are from people in the church, and then it, like, scrolls to just anything that you like or many of the things you like then show up on my, my feed. And so it's, it's pretty fun to see the things that you think are funny. Like, I saw this one th- th- this morning. I like this joke. We all know where the Big Apple is, but does anyone know where Minneapolis is? <laughs> Just sit with it. Minneapolis is? All right. I thought that was funny myself, so I really like the jokes. And then what I do is I take a screen grab of the joke, and then I trim it, and then I text it to my daughters. And so that's, <laughs> that's my flow. That's my workflow. <laughs> I like the jokes. I also like these things called reels. It's stuff that was probably on TikTok like three weeks ago, but because I'm middle-aged, it shows up on Instagram, and I watch it three weeks late. But I just saw one that really illustrates the, 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 the safety of what I would suggest to you you need is a healthy local church. It was, a, it was, a, it was this little 20-second video clip of a crocodile, or an alligator, actually. It was an alligator trying to eat a turtle. And it came with its giant jaws, and it grabs this turtle and gets its entire mouth around this turtle, and it is all the way in there, and then just starts chomping. And the video, you can hear it just like, I mean, it's just this terrible sound of teeth on a shell, and it's just chomp, chomp, chomp. And then the turtle falls out, and the, the, the alligator grabs it again, and it lifts its head, and it's like it could swallow the whole thing, and it's just trying to chomp it, chomp it again, and then just Drops it again, and then I love it. The turtle just with swagger just walks away, <laughs> right back into the water. Notice what book ends this very challenging description of some very caustic people in this text in verse 9 and then verse 1 of chapter 2. That they might 
be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. And then over in verse one of chapter two, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine, healthy doctrine, right doctrine. Sound doctrine is like a protective shell to bad doctrine. It equips you in such a way that when threats come, they're not able to crush you. You're able to stand against them. C.S. Lewis says it like this in The Weight of Glory. He says, good philosophy must exist if for no other reason because bad philosophy needs to be answered. Now, as we apply it to the Bible, we need good doctrine for more than just answering bad doctrine, but we really need good doctrine in order to withstand bad doctrine. I shared this uh, illustration this past spring, but I wanted to do it again because I think it sets up why being hungry for good teaching like knowing it, wanting to receive it, to get it is so important. And I don't remember where I first heard this, but the way federal agents are trained in order to detect counterfeit money is not by studying counterfeit money, but studying the real thing. And so back when I shared this illustration originally, I wanted to make sure that that was true, and so I did some research, and I came across an author named Tim Chalice who lives up in Canada who wanted to test this out because we all grew up, you know, in, in the 70s and 80s, we're about the same age, and we all heard the same thing around the playground, but we didn't have the internet back then, which never lies, so we couldn't check it, and so he, he wanted to explore it, so he did. So he reached out, he's up in Canada, he reached out to, um, to, a depart, uh, to an agency and kept doing it, kept doing it, and finally said, yes, you can come in, and so they take him into this, this this entry place, screen them, check it, pockets, all that stuff. And then they finally take him to this like windowless room in the middle of this building, which had to be a little intimidating. But then an agent comes in and basically affirms what we've all told each other, that the way agents are most trained to check counterfeit money is by studying and knowing the real thing. And then the agent said, let's get you ready. Hands them a stack of bills. It says, here's what you, there's, there's four things you need to do with this. First, you're going to touch it. There's a certain feel to the paper that we use that is really unique. The, the, the fiber count, the direction, the way it's constructed that's really hard to reproduce. You can also, you're going to tilt it. There's, there's a, a, not a hologram, but like a little strip of magnetic uh, metallic foil paper that's going to run through it, and when you tilt it, that's going to reflect. It's going to create these rainbow colors. You're going to hold the money up. You're going to look through it. You're going to look through it because there's a watermark that's imprinted. It's really hard for counterfeiters to get right. And then, then you're, you're, going to, you're going to look at it. You're just going to stare at it. And you're going to notice the fine line precision that's almost impossible for somebody to counterfeit. And so he does this, he, he begins to do this, and now the agent says, okay, now I'm going to hand you another stack of money, some is real, some is not. And what Charlie says is incredible, because he said, it was like instant. I grab a piece, and I just go, I know, that feels too waxy, there's no way that's real. Oh, that doesn't, yes, that feels right. Oh, I'm looking at it, there's, there's no reflection, okay, I know that's wrong. I'm looking, there's no watermark, I know that's wrong, or I see it, yes, that's right. I look at it, it's like, it's, it's close, but boy, it doesn't have the same kind of precision, He was surprised by how easy it was to spot the fake if you've studied the real thing. No doubt false teaching, false teachers are everywhere. There's probably no end to the variations of their counterfeits. You can't study for all the counterfeits, but what you can do is know the real thing deeply. To be hungry for sound teaching. That's why this book matters so much. 
It's why knowing sound doctrine matters so much. It's why being hungry for the word of God matters so much. That you might be able to spot the counterfeits quickly. Sound doctrine, it's like a protective shell. I'm gonna get to the commitment here in just a second. I'll do this quickly. But there's another really important thing to that protection. It's the local church. Something that might be easy to miss or to undervalue in this text is the role that a local church has in our formation. All of this was happening in a local church where sound doctrine is known, is taught, is lived out, and defended. Think about verse 11 again, this household language. They're upsetting the, the faith of families. They're upsetting the faith of, of a household. There is an extra measure of urgency and a motivation to silence false teaching in this context. Why? Because they're messing with the family. My family, I, my mom has 12 brothers and sisters. Um, it is a wild crew. I got like 70 first cousins. It's, it's crazy. And, and they're a very colorful bunch. And um, I got lots of stories that eventually I'll write down when they all die. But um, one of the things I really appreciate about this family is like you mess with any of them, you mess with all of them. And there is a lot of them. Think about my family. Think about my kids. And I think about the cul-de-sac I live in. Out of the 12 homes that are in our cul-de-sac, 10 of them have kids that are under the age of 18. Now, I care about every kid and every family in our cul-de-sac, not as deeply as I should, but I do care about them. I know some of them better than others. Um, I want all of them to flourish. But here's what I'm not doing with anyone else's kids. Checking their phones to see what they're looking at or setting limits on how much they can use them. I'm not debriefing sitcoms or movies or shows they want to watch. I'm not talking about career goals with them much. (laughs) I'm not discussing what did you talk about at school today? What was taught? What was said in the hallways? I'm not praying regularly with them. We're not debriefing like what you heard on YouTube or some Instagram influencer that's going viral. I definitely do not track anyone else's kids on find my phone. I don't know what their curfews are. I don't ask what they're thinking about people they're considering dating. I don't ask whose party they're thinking of going to and if the parents are going to be there or not. But I do with mine. And my kids may not like that. I hope they'll actually love it because it's because I, they're mine. They're mine. See, when you're part of a, a, a local church, there's a, there's a degree of belonging. There's a degree of protection. There's an extra measure of, we all care about everyone. I hope we all care about everyone in our community, everyone we ever glance at, everyone we pass by, that's, that we want them to flourish. But there is something uniquely different when you say, I'm part of this community, there's, there's, a, there's a quickness to people saying, we're going to pursue, we're going to protect, we're going to engage with, we're not going to just let you wander, we're not going to just give up on you quickly, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna pray for you and pursue you and love you and, and patiently sit with you and never give up on you. Why? Because we're family. Let me give you the doable commitment, and I am finishing. Be meaningfully connected. 
to a local church that cares deeply about sound doctrine and you. One massive threat, Jesus plus legalism, one huge hope, anyone can change. One very doable commitment to help us all stay sound in the faith, be meaningfully devoted to a local church that's deeply devoted to the word of God and to you. Let's pray. Father God, there's so much in your word always. We could camp out in a word of it. We could camp out in a verse of it. There's much that we didn't even touch in this text. But God, I ask that the things we did talk about would imprint on us in ways that people that, that, that maybe feel like they're more on the fringes, that they would feel the freedom to take steps further in, not knowing their backgrounds, not knowing the way. Local churches don't always feel like the safe places they're supposed to feel. Far too often they don't. God, wherever we have not felt that way, help us to recognize, help us to see, help us to ask forgiveness, to repent, to make amends and do better. But God, local churches can be healthy places. God, wherever we've used doctrine as weapons to to war against others, God, may we repent. But wherever we've used it for health, God, may you give us courage with. Above all things, God, wherever we've gotten sloppy with the gospel, wherever we've added to it, wherever we've shrunk it, wherever we've diminished Christ, whether in our words, our behaviors, our, our prayers, wherever we've made our salvation contingent upon what we do, and not fully, not Christ bearing the full weight of it. God, would you, would, you, would you correct us? Would you instruct us? And if need be, God, would you rebuke us? That we might turn and be sound in the faith. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the gospel. Of all the things I want and long for in our church is that we would be a place that never loses a, a grip on your grace but we know it's only gonna be through your faithfulness to us that we do that. And so we ask for it in Jesus' name, amen, amen.